Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is from the Old Testament. It's called Micah, Prophetic Critique, Pastoral Comfort. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 29th, 2017. In his book, The Prophetic Imagination, Walter Brueggemann suggests that the prophets of Israel were really about two things. Their ministry included both criticizing and energizing. The prophets disturb our status quo, question the reigning order of things, help us see the normal state of affairs in a different light, and they advocate a new way of living. All this in every dimension of life personal, social, spiritual, economic, political. The prophets afflicted the comfortable and the complacent. So, don't read the prophets if you don't want some sort of helmet slap. But the prophets also energized God's people. They comforted the afflicted. They intended to generate hope affirm identity, and create a new future. They weren't just negative naysayers. They offered positive affirmation and encouragement. Yes, the prophets dished out the vinegar, but they also gave us honey for the heart. The reading from Micah this week offers a good example of both prophetic critique in pastoral comfort. We don't know much about Micah except that he came from the small town of Morasheth, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. That places him in the southern kingdom of Judah, although oddly enough he also directs his prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah was a younger contemporary of Isaiah, Amos and Hosea. We know this because he tells us that he prophesied during the reigns of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And in a tantalizing tidbit of literariness, Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2, parts of them are almost identical. One prophet clearly copied from the other, or maybe they both used a third source. There was clearly some collaboration among some of the prophets, and maybe even a prophetic school of some sort. Micah's prophecy begins with legal language. In chapter 6, verse 2, God brings a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. The mountains will melt like wax and the valley will split open like water crashing down a hill. For his critique is a word of disaster, destruction, and calamity for both Israel and Judah. He singles out Samaria and Jerusalem, the respective capital cities of the northern and southern kingdoms, and as such, the unique centers of influence for their nations. More particularly, he targets the upper crust, the intelligentsia, 
and the cultural elite of these cities. Micah calls the nation's religious leaders false prophets, and in turn, they give Micah the same business that Amos and Jeremiah received. Don't prophesy about these things, they said. Disgrace will not overtake us. <clears throat> these religious leaders were peddling the worst sort of false comforts. Invoking bitter sarcasm, Micah says that the perfect prophet for these people was a liar and a deceiver who said, I will prophesy for you plenty of beer and wine. Chapter 2. If one feeds them, then they proclaim peace. Chapter 3. Her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will befall us. <clears throat> Micah then turns to the civic and cultural elite. He paints a horrifying picture of political oppression and economic exploitation by the strong and powerful against the weak and dispossessed. He writes, The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The rich, says Micah, are people of violence. These leaders, and I quote Micah, tear the skin from my people, break their bones in pieces. They despise justice, distort the right, take bribes as a matter of course, and are skilled in doing evil with both hands. Making it even worse, the religious leaders sanction this. They legitimized the status quo and said, it was all God's will. Contrary to all the false promises of the false prophets, disaster did overtake Israel, just as Micah had predicted. Assyria invaded the north and trampled their forces in 722 BC. Babylon ravaged the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. At this, Micah could only weep and wail. He says that he went about barefoot and naked, that he howled like a jackal and moaned like an owl, because Israel's wound was incurable. But just when his prophetic critique feels like too much to bear, Michael energizes God's people with words of hope. Broadly speaking, he does this in four ways. First, he speaks about a remnant. True, disaster befell the nation as a whole, but out of this forced exile there would come a remnant. Eventually, we read about this remnant in the post-exilic prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Out of the ruins, God will bring a measure of restoration and renewal. Micah also points Israel to what he calls, in chapter 4, verse 1, the last days. 
sometime in their far future. In words that echo Isaiah and that indicate some sort of literary dependence, Micah promises that in some future day many nations will come, not just Israel and Judah, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This will be a time of comfort, not critique, of healing, not hellfire, of restoration, and not ruin. This future salvation would include a Messiah or an anointed one, promised by Micah to come from tiny Bethlehem in chapter 5, verse 2, which of course we know later is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Then Micah gives to Israel two of the most memorable passages in all of Scripture. In the first one, he reminds them of the nature of true religion. It consists not of outward forms, of rote ritual, but of an inner transformation. In chapter 6, verse 8, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And finally, after all his fire and brimstone, Micah reminds Israel of the never-ending grace of God. In the last two verses of the entire prophecy, he offers these same false prophets, these drunken religious leaders, corrupt politicians, greedy business people, these self-serving civic fathers. He offers all of them a word of forgiveness. Even today, every year, these beautiful words in chapter 7, verses 18 to 19, are read by Jews on the Day of Atonement. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And so Micah's last word is not one of prophetic critique. It's an evocative reminder of the energizing hope that God offers to each and every one of us. For books this week, I review a novel by Colson Whitehead. It's called The Underground Railroad. New York Doubleday, 2016, 306 pages. Colson Whitehead has earned a MacArthur Grant, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his previous five novels and two works of nonfiction. His newest book about a runaway slave named Cora was a selection for Oprah's Book Club, has been shortlisted for numerous Book of the Year lists, and was nominated for a National Book Award. Cora's story begins with her grandmother, Ajari, 
who was sold by slavers in the coastal city of Awuda in Benin, then sold and resold. And with her mother Mabel, whom she barely knew because she vanished one night as a runaway, thus stranding Cora as a stray on the Randall Plantation in Georgia. She was a stray because she was orphaned, but in every other sphere as well. Somewhere years ago, she had stepped off the path of life and could no longer find her way back to the family of people. Or, as a wanted poster for her put it, Cora was possessed of a spirit, spirited nature and devious method. And so, like her mother, one night Cora bolted. In this morally murky tale in which everyone is implicated and no one was spared, she meets bad people who were good and good people who were bad monsters and saints, both black and white, ordinary people doing extraordinary acts of cruelty but also kindness, people with new names and fake papers. We meet station agents, night riders and slave catchers, abolitionists who posed as slave catchers in order to free people, grave robbers who dug up black bodies and sold them as cadavers for dissection, people in mixed marriages, children who betray their parents, and the many unknown people who dug the secret networks of tunnels, laid the tracks, and left food and drink in the underground railroad stations. Driving all this, writes Colson Whitehead, was the ruthless engine of cotton, which required its fuel of African bodies. Whitehead does an especially good job of detailing the complexities of people and place. South Carolina, for example, prided itself on civilizing the savage and its Negro uplift. In North Carolina, there were public lynchings on the town square every Friday. And in Indiana, we meet a progressive farm that fostered community for all in open debate about the colored question. That is, until the place was burned to the ground. If there's a message in this story, it comes at the end of the book. I quote, the world may be mean, but people don't have to be, not if they refuse. But that's easier said than done. For even if you escaped the hell of plantation life, Cora learned, you carried it with you, despite the miles. It lived in them. It still lived in all of them, waiting to abuse and taunt when chance presented itself. Even after a horrific civil war, that plantation history continues to live today. An award-winning bestseller by Colson Whitehead. It's called The Underground Railroad, a novel. For movies this week, I review a TV series. It's called Nosedive from 2016. Nosedive is a single episode in a British television series called Black Mirror 
that debuted back in 2011 and was later made available on Netflix. The creator, Charlie Booker, explains, if technology is a drug, and it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are the side effects? This area between delight and comfort is where Black Mirror is set. The Black Mirror of the title is the one you'll find on every wall, every desk, in the palm of every hand, the cold, shiny screen of a TV, a monitor, a smartphone. The fictional satires have drawn comparisons to the Twilight Zone with their explorations of our techno-paranoia. So far, there have been 13 episodes in Black Mirror, each of which is about 45 to 90 minutes long. This episode, Nosedive, considers our obsession with self-validation through social media ratings. In Nosedive, the characters utilize a single social media platform to rate every, every online and real-life interaction on a five-star scale. In this techno-dystopia, everyone walks around with their user-generated score in front of their face visible to all. Which score defines everything about them, their worth to society, their employment possibilities, their attractiveness to others, their access to goods and service, and most of all, their sense of self-worth. Since life in this world is an unending performance, characters shape their lives and identities in order to chase the holy grail of a five-point rating, much like an Uber driver or Twitter user might do. That self-censoring, of course, leads to all sorts of horrible consequences for one's self-image and authenticity. Nosedive considers what life would be like if we had a Yelp application that we used to rank everything about each other. From the British television series called Black Mirror, the episode is called Nosedive. I watched this on Netflix. For poetry this week, a favorite author, Mary Carr. The name of her poem is called Disgraceland. Before my first communion at 40, I clung to doubt as Satan spider-like stalked the orb of dark surrounding Eden for a wormhole into paradise. God has first formed me in the womb, small as a bite of burger. Once my lungs were done, he sailed a soul like a lit arrow to inflame me. Maybe that piercing made my howl at birth or the masked creatures whose scalpel cut a lightning bolt to free me. I was hoisted by the heels and swatted, fed and hauled through rooms. Time-lapse photos show my fingers grew past crayon outlines. My feet came to fill spike heels. Eventually, I lurched out to kiss the wrong mouths 
get stewed and sulk around. Christ always stood to one side with a glass of water. I swatted the sap away. When my thirst got great enough to ask, a stream welled up inside. Some jade wave buoyed me forward, and I found myself upright in the instant, with a garden inside my own ribs, a flourish. There, the arbor leaves. The vines push out plump grapes. You are loved, someone said. Take that and eat it. Mary Carr, the title of the poem is Disgraceland. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 29th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.